Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kate Rebecca. Hello, I'm Jonathan Magnew. Hi, it's Grant Haggerty. Hi, I'm Sharon Spoon from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not The Food Issue. Yep. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. And it's great to be back and there's plenty to talk about. We've got two guests lined up for you on this podcast as we talk about uh, hand cycle, mountain biking and also a little bit of fencing. But John, we probably should recap a little bit on the Rugby World Cup first up. Well... Well done to New Zealand, first up. That's the first thing we should say. But And well done to the Australians. 12 months ago, I don't think too many people would have picked them to make the final. I've got to be honest, I didn't give them a prayer. I thought quarterfinals, the way they were playing a year ago, was probably the best they could hope for. But uh, Michael Checker, thoroughly deserving, in my opinion, the coach of the year. And I think one key area where Australia really made a difference was bringing back the likes of Gitto, Drew Mitchell being allowed to play for the Wallabies. I think that experience and playing in big games really made a massive difference to the side. And you didn't see the team dominated by those players. It'll be interesting to see down the years how that uh, transpires, but the team was dominated by people who were playing the Super 15 competition, not overseas. I still think Gitto's injury in the final had a massive oh, impact. Huge. I mean, him going off and at Kane that time. And Kane Douglas. Yeah, Kane Douglas. But to me, I just felt Gitto was offering something in the centres that he could have actually turned the game. One spark of magic, and he was really in great form in the World Cup, but it just wasn't to be. And I I think, in a way, it would be very harsh to take a victory away from New Zealand because, overall, I think they were the best team. Oh, yeah, and you've got to beat New Zealand. You, You know, you can't just fluke a win. You actually have to beat them, and we probably didn't do quite enough on the night. Certainly, that first half, New Zealand dominated. I mean, the ball hardly got in Australia's attacking half of the field. They were just on the back foot the whole time. They were, and I mean, again, when Australia did come at New Zealand, Dan Carter pops up with a drop goal (laughs) just to ease that pressure. And I I think, again, it was funny, a lot of the commentators, Tim Horan was going, oh, it's going to be a battle of the centres and a battle of the back row. And I I felt it was always going to be the scrum half fly halves who were going to actually determine the game. And to me, it was Dan Carter who really controlled the game for the All Blacks throughout. But it was a fabulous tournament. Um, the, the, the standard of rugby played, I thought, was very good. It was very attacking. Uh, people were trying to score tries. They weren't just trying to kick for possession, and pick, except for South Africa, and pick up penalty points. You know what I mean? They were, they were seriously looking to score tries, and to their credit, even South Africa were looking to score tries as well. They weren't just relying on the super boot. They more or less were playing, well, we know we've got him if we need him, but we should be scoring tries. No, I think all the teams were really good. Argentina, we should mention them. I mean, what a fantastic tournament they had. I I still think that, and JT, you know, he used to do the Super Rug with me when we were doing it on the station. There's just too many people on the pitch sometimes. I mean, you've got six or seven people, and you know they're not just uh, water carriers or medics. They're carrying messages out there. And it was interesting. I was talking to Richard Lowe, the former All Black, and he was telling me um, who was the fullback that, uh, I think it was Stephen Larkham, he was saying that the All Blacks always believed that when Eddie Jones was coached, they actually had an earpiece in there, and he was being spoken to during the game. Well, it wouldn't be the first time it's happened in world sport. It wasn't it Mickey Arthur who tried that with the South Africans? Was no, it, it was Bob Woolman and Hansi Cronje. Yeah, 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 yeah. Same, same thing. And also, I'd, I think you've got to give credit to uh, some of the refereeing. I thought that went on. I know, I know, it had its controversial moments, but a lot of it was pretty good. Uh, very often, rugby can be mired down by a referee's interpretation of what should be going on, and teams, you know, struggle to cope with it. But I thought. There was a lot of uh, common sense refereeing going on. There's a lot of people who were upset that the World Rugby came out and said Craig Joubert oh, got that yeah, decision well. wrong. We were talking about it before yep. we started recording this. Now, the first time I watched it live, I thought it was a Scottish knock-on. Then when I watched the replay, yes, it did come off Phipps, but then it becomes really confusing because it was the player, to, did he deliberately try and stop play when he was offside and or if it had come off the Scottish player, it would have been offside. But it was very, very complex. I think the one thing World Rugby needs to look at, and Craig Joubert, we have to remember, in that instance, is not allowed to refer to the TMO because it's only for foul play and whether it's a try or not. 
I think in those moments, they've got to look at it and go, well, this is for a place in the semi-final. It's a key moment in the game and there should be the option where they can go upstairs just to make sure they get it right. I think you're probably on the right track there. But what we've got to remember is that Craig Joubert was standing in front of it. This happened in front of it. Referees don't get a better look than what he had. And in his mind, he saw the penalty and he blew it. And I thought it was a bit rough of the IRB to come out and... World rugby now. Oh, world rugby. Yeehaw. <laughs> uh, world rugby to come out and hang him out to dry saying, oh, he got it wrong. When so many people who know rugby well sit on either side of whether it was right or wrong. Lots of people go who know the rules far better than I say, no, it was a penalty, blah, blah, blah. No, it wasn't, blah, blah. So when you got that sort of thing happening... Why would you hang a bloke for it? This is where I, I think... You and know, he the refereed whole... that game very well. That oh, he was did. his it, only blemish. He's a very good referee. And I think this is where I, I have a problem with the whole technical, you know, technology as it is. Because when you played sport, there was always that margin of error. Some decisions went your way. Some didn't go your way. It was the rubber, the green. But now because we've got this, everyone's saying, well, you've got to use it. Because, you know, uh, the other option is to go the hockey path where you actually turn around and say to both teams, you've got one referral a half. Yeah. If you're wrong, you lose it. And and I think that might be the better way to go because suddenly you're not referring something just because it's the last five minutes, but the captain can go, hang on, I want to refer that. Yeah. I mean, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if he hadn't paid the penalty. Because I guarantee Michael Checker would have been throwing his arms up in the air and making noises about it. Yeah, it would be interesting. I haven't actually watched the reaction of the Australian players. Oh, a couple of them actually do go. No, they up do. For it, they yeah. know straight away. In fact, they stick their hands up before Jubilee yeah, blows. Thinking his about whistle. it, I have seen that. Yeah, yeah. So they they were fully aware that he was in an offside position. But you're saying it'd be interesting to see Checker's reaction. I think it'd be very interesting to see the TMO's interpretation well, of the yeah. laws on that one because there's been so much debate since. What would you do? You know. Just pass. <laughs> just, go with what Craig said. Oh, hang Craig out. <laughs> just moving ahead from that, a lot was made about Nigel Owens being the first um, openly gay man to referee a World Cup final. To be honest, who cares? I mean, look, great that he's there, but he should be judged on whether he's a good referee. I don't care about his sexuality. I don't care about his religion as long as he does a great job in the middle of the pitch. If he wants to be happy in public, I've got nothing against that for Nigel. As you say, as long as he plays the game correctly. That's what he's there for. Absolutely. And it was good to see that the Rugby World Cup best match moment was, of course, Japan beating the Springboks. <laughs> no real surprises with that one, I don't think. No, fantastic moment. And they're going to go a long time before they live down the Springboks. Oh, they'll be itching to get a rematch with Japan soon. They will indeed. Now, just before we wrap up the talk on rugby, congratulations to Brisbane City because uh, they've just won their second successive Buildcorp National Rugby Championship with a 21-10 over University of Canberra Vikings at Ballymore Oval. So, well done to them. And I felt a bit sorry for the NRC this year because it did run throughout the World Cup and it was very hard to actually remember it was even happening. And uh, last year there was actually coverage of the final. This year there wasn't. Or they might have been on pay TV. I think it was on Fox, yeah. They did show a game a week. The ABC didn't broadcast the game, which I thought was a bit sad. Yeah, talking of broadcasting, uh, what do you make about the EPL being lost to Fox? Now, David Gallup has come out saying, oh, this is great news possibly for the A-League because it will give them more money. But I don't think he actually understands that if... There's no money coming in from the advertising of the EPL, which would be which was Fox's biggest earning sport. There's suddenly not going to be as much money slushing around. There's going to be a big hole to fill on air, and also I think you know there's not going to be the money there for Fox to actually spend. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out, especially you know for the A League's chances. They're already on pay per view or pay TV, not pay per view. Uh, how much it affects their audiences. Is that how much will that damage their rights? If people aren't watching it because they don't have Foxtel anymore, because they don't get the EPL anymore, and that's really going to hurt the A League. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it would hurt other sports in the same way that it's going to hurt them. I think it's going to hurt them a lot 
because the viewing figures for Friday Night Football on SBS are shocking. Yes. They're not good at all. And I think a lot of people tune in to the A-League and then the EPL comes on straight after it and they probably piggyback off the back of the uh, English Premier League. And if that's not there, are people going to tune in? Are they going to hand their Fox subscriptions back? I mean, regardless of that, the A-League's got a problem. When you, when you see the biggest club in the country can only draw 7,000 fans to a cup semi-final game against a team from its own city... I, th- I think they're struggling. I mean, I know a lot was made about Perth Glory's crowd figures by the Eastern States media in their semi-final. Well, lo and behold, what happens in Melbourne? And they're the biggest club with the most members. And Melbourne prides itself on being a sporting city. That is a real problem. And then you get the talk of another Sydney team. That is just crazy, ludicrous stuff. But to me, the problem is not necessarily that. It's the problem is the FFA Cup. And we've talked about it before. It's it's a garbage competition, in my opinion. I have not... I watched the final last year. was the only game I watched on TV. It, it just does not excite me when you have a competition that's seeded so that half the A-League teams go out in the first round. You then have it seeded so that a non-A-League team makes the semi-final. And I went back after we had this conversation yeah. on the last podcast. Do you know Hume City and Bentley Cannons last year? Neither of them... Who had this fairy tale run yes, to the, the fairy final, tale run to the semi-finals? They never played a single A-League club, so they didn't beat an A-League club on their run. So where is the fairy tale in that? And I think the punters are beginning to wake up. Also, with the games being midweek, it doesn't work, and also the fact that a lot of them aren't playing on their home grounds and are having to play elsewhere. I think having the final when they're having it too kills it as well. If you look at the great cup competitions of the world they have their cup final a week or two weeks after their season ends it actually becomes the climax of the season because very often your league can be done and dusted several weeks out you know who's going to win several weeks beforehand sometimes sometimes you get cliffhangers but this guarantees there's going to be one big bang game to finish your season off and i think if they try they should look at restructuring it and they could restructure those weekend games into it. And this is where though the, the the argument is, because if you look at the way it is at the moment, the A-League teams are in pre-season, and if you take Hume City, their season had finished six, seven weeks ago, so they had to keep playing, didn't have any games, but they've got to keep the players ticking over to be playing. And keep in playing them. <laughs> well, I presume they were, but if, if you look at what you're saying, that would work so much better. So you could have some games... At the end of the NPL season, yep. start of the A-League, then you go in at the start when the NPL clubs are doing their pre-season training and the A-League clubs are in, so then in the middle of the season and then you get through building to that climax. So I think that's definitely a far better way to go. And I'd like to see the final as a home and away th- affair. Oh yeah, I'm not. That doesn't. I don't like these two-legged final things. I think finals are final. Very often, it's easy to work out which team should have the home ground advantage because there's a one position or there's something like that. When you're talking a cup where there's no table or no league, it's much harder to determine who should have home final advantage. Which leads us to. Well, that's the thing with the Perth Glory. I mean, it was unfortunate for their fans that they haven't got it. I personally feel having made two finals in a row, they should have got it. But you know that money talks. And financially, the point you made, Melbourne Victory are there, the best supported club in the league, and the FFA will believe that they will fill out the stadium there. Would they have filled it out here in Perth? They'd have got close to it. I don't think they would have filled it because there are still a lot of people very, very bitter towards Perth Glory. But I uh, think they'd have got close to the 18,000. Oh, they certainly deserve to hold it here on a fairness scale. But as you mentioned, these things aren't always fair. You know, two finals in a row, if, especially when you play the first one away, they should say, yep, you guys, you deserve to have it at home. I think the fans deserve it. And, they, and this is the key thing. The fans in this state have been treated really badly. I mean, you look, it was 10 years we had to wait for a Socceroos game. It was Bangladesh, not a great team, but people turned out in numbers to watch the Socceroos. And even then they stuffed that up. Yeah, but give us a final here and we'll show you that people will come. And even though a lot of true glory fans who are unhappy with the current regime will not go, there will be people who will go because it's a final and they're offered free tickets. So you will still get a very good crowd. Hi, I'm Thomas and Henry Hearn and you are listening to Not The Foodie Show. Probably time we turn to our first guest. And Andrew Ladawi is 
our first guest on this podcast. Couldn't believe we haven't had him on the show for so long, but you may recall that Andrew was a mountain bike enthusiast, and then while he was actually following that pursuit, he broke his spine. He's represented Australia at wheelchair basketball, and a couple of years ago decided that he was going to do mountain hand cycling. And he managed to get a hand cycle from Germany, or it may have been Poland, and it took part in the Cape to Cape, just one stage of it. But this time around, he's done all four stages, 200 kilometers of mountain bike riding. Andrew Ladawi, welcome back to Not The Footy Show. Thanks for having me, mate. Great to see you again. It is. I can't believe it's been two years since we spoke to you, and uh, I feel very ashamed that it's been that long. <laughs> I've been ashamed not contacting you guys. A lot's been going on, so I think we've been both been busy on both sides, so now it's good to finally get in touch with you guys again. Well, there's a lot been happening, I think, since uh, we last spoke, and one of the things, first of all, I think was you obviously got the mountain bike, uh, you know, the, the quad bike, or how do you, I don't know how you describe it, but anyway. Yeah, the trike or the hand cycle, either way. Yep, and you actually had other members of Wheelchair Sports WA come and have a go, I believe, up in Mundaring earlier in the year. Yeah, so in April, uh, was the Anzac long weekend. We had about 30 people show up to this, so it was quite overwhelming. And there were a lot of other people that couldn't make it as well. Um, and that was really, we, we had four different hand cycles, um, slightly different uh, models and variations in the equipment. So it gave people an opportunity to jump in each one and go for a quick couple of hundred meters spin and get get a get a feel of what the equipment entailed, but also what it felt like to be off-road as well. And I think that was the real focus. So, um, yeah, we've, we've run two of those days and we're looking at running a few more uh, towards the end of the year and beginning of next year. Well, you did a lot of fundraising to get the one hand cycle over here that you use, and it's available for other people to use as well. That's right. But have you got more than one now, or is it still just really the one? No, uh, Wheelchair Sports purchased another two last year, so they've got three in total. Plus, there's uh, three other guys that have their own individual ones as well, and I'll be looking at getting my own sometime in the next few months. So it's gone from one. You know, over three years, it's blown up to, to about six to eight now. So it's just it's just growing phenomenally. That's fantastic that the, the sort of mountain biking community or people are really getting into the off-road uh, cycling, hand cycling in a big way, it sounds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the people that typically get involved are people who come from, you know, very off-roady sporting backgrounds, people who are into motorbikes and motocross and uh, we've got a few ex-mountain bikers as well, so it, it's just it just makes natural sense for them to jump back into a hand cycle and get back onto the dirt. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there that want to do it, and you know, the, part of it is building that equipment um, number up, but also looking at the trail accessibility and, and finding places where people can actually ride these uh, trikes. So, yeah, it's it's gone from you know zero to to quite a lot of people now that are interested. And, you know, unfortunately, the first time we ran the demo day, there was, there was probably about 10 people that couldn't make it. So, yeah, we were looking at about 40-odd people that are really interested in the sport. And this includes family members that also want to go riding with people on hand cycles. So, yeah, it's really growing. And there's a lot of other things happening. Um, there's a few guys uh, looking at making their own equipment here in Perth. So really taking the charge in manufacturing that sort of stuff in a local base, uh, not just to cut down on costs, but to really have something customizable to individuals. So, you know, still still early stages on that front, but um, it's it's looking very hopeful. Well, the one thing I noticed looking at your website, Break the Boundary, that you've even got a bigger staff now in terms of support. It was just you when we first yeah. spoke to you, and now there's a sort of team of supporters. Yeah, look, um, they're all volunteers, and I, I volunteer all my time as well. So it's really just a group of people that are just passionate about helping, but also uh, off-road and mountain biking. Um, this year, I've had a slightly different team uh, because of people's schedules and things like that. So there's even more people that I should probably be putting on my website as well. And it's a range of people from different backgrounds. It's uh, riders, it's support riders, um, it's vehicle support, uh, transport. We've got physios, uh, we've got photographers, uh, we've got a PR guy as well that helps out from Victoria. So 
yeah, it's slowly growing and yeah, it's, I, I'd like to keep it as a volunteer thing as well. And a lot of these people, they're just so passionate about it. They're not looking for anything and they get a lot of excitement and kick out of it just from being a part of the journey, really. Well, when we spoke to you, you did one section of the Cape to Cape Down South. But this yeah. year, you decided to do all four stages all four. of it. Um, yeah. uh, but I believe that was a little bit in doubt because there were a few health issues at the, earlier in the year that maybe put it in question. Yeah, look, it was only a matter of time before I got into the full four stages. And yeah, look, I came down with a pretty nasty pressure sore, which had me bedridden for a few weeks. Um, and just uh, general health, I came down with a pretty nasty flu, which actually lasted for quite a few weeks, um, not your typical flu. So, um, yeah, that and a few other personal things going on, and the training wasn't the best for the first half of the year, but eventually and slowly, you know, things started to fall into place, and, you know, I gradually picked up my uh, training schedule with the gym and, and the strength and conditioning and started getting back into hand cycling and, you know, working my kilometers and distances and intensity. And, no, look, the, you know, the, the short uh, stint of about four months of intense training, it definitely paid off for the four days uh, last week. Um, Yeah, I don't know how I would have fared out without that much training and, you know, the training with the support riders as well. You've got to have that really good um connection with them. It's not just grabbing anyone that rides a bike and having them come along for the journey. You've really got to do a bit of training with them as well. I mean, the one thing is, obviously, you must have to do a lot of training on the upper body because, obviously, a hand cycle, it's not yeah. your legs doing all of the work. And, uh, I mean, how much gym work did you have to do to prepare for the four <coughs> stages? Yeah, at my peak, and there was probably a good probably two months where I was hitting the gym about three, sometimes four times a week, um, and that was um, – that was very consistent training, which is what I needed, and, and different types of training schedules. Uh, so we'd go from a strength-building phase to a more of a conditioning and sports-specific phase, and then we'd go into you know your, your really minor um, details in terms of your training. So there's you know three to four solid sessions a week, plus I'd throw in uh, three to four, um, I guess you could call them more of your endurance uh, distances, so looking around 40 kilometers, uh, as well on the hand cycle and yeah I think recovery is something that we always always tend to forget about as well so I really um, started getting a consistent recovery program uh, after after um, after each training session but also what I did on my rest days as well. Now with the Cape to Cape this year you said that the organisers have been really good in that they seem to have actually consulted with you to find out how obviously a hand cycle could get around and participate yep. in an event like this and, and it's real hats off to them in that regard yeah look um consults a very good word and i think yeah bang on there um yeah look we sat down we had a few conversations and we sat over a coffee as well and um they really took it on board and and that's the tipping point when they started taking things a little bit more seriously than the last couple of years and now that they're seeing more people involved with hand cycling. They're sort of standing up and going, "Oh, okay, we should probably, you know, nip this in the bottom um, early on and get the logistics out of the way before you know things go a little out of control." And yeah, they've done an absolutely phenomenal job. Um, I couldn't ask for any more. And I think it's it's really a good model that we can use for other mountain biking events that want to include hand cycling as well. So they've done a great job. And just to sort of touch on a few things that we did work on. Um, signage was a big thing. We actually developed our own um, customized signage, um, which gave us opportunities to detour off the main course for sections that were um, not practical to have a hand cycle. Um, so the signage came into place. It did its job. Um, other things such as checkpoints as well. We, we need uh, a few more checkpoints than, I guess, your regular regular mountain bikers, there's a few health issues involved with riding for five hours on a hand cycle. So uh, every now and then we'll have to have a quick checkpoint. Um, so they did a good job with that. And yeah, they just really switched on with it. And, and I think they understand it a lot better now. And, and hopefully um, that relationship continues. Well, there was a phrase you used to me and you, you used it in your blog as well, that you no longer felt like a novelty act 
um, yeah. that really this year you were one of the competitors on equal footing with all of the able-bodied cyclists. Yeah, look, um, I think the first two years it, it was a novelty thing, and that's probably because there was only one or two of us taking it a bit seriously. But now that they see, you know, there's about four or six of us that actually want to take on the Cape to Cape, um, they they do, uh, I guess, respect it a little bit more. And actually, at the end of uh, the fourth stage, they uh, gave us a little gift. Myself and the other hand cyclist, Connor, they they actually gave us a little. Um, present at the end and a, a photo with all the um, elite men, uh, the top five men in, in the full uh, race. So that was a, it was a great pleasure to be up on stage with those guys. And yeah, it just shows you how, how they really respect it now as a sport. And hopefully, you know, that message gets sent out to other um, directors and events. I'm sure the elite cyclists were actually intrigued by you guys as well. Yeah, look, um, this after, after event, functions as well and I do speak to some of these uh, these top end uh, athletes and you know they, they love just chatting with me just having a, a casual chin wag and, and we're all very casual about it so yeah no I think they respect us uh, and, and that, that respect's mutual between the two of us so yeah no look um, uh, and they, they've seen my face you know for the last three years now and, and I recognize them as well and, and they tend to come back every year and yeah it's, it's a really good uh relationship to have with these um, elite guys and look we've I've got some um, plans uh, I guess for next year to see if I can rope some of these guys onto a hand cycle so you know we might do it as a charity thing or just a one-off event but it'll be really good to give these guys an idea of what it's like to use their upper body because as we know these elite male and female athletes are very log leg dominant so we can flip that around as a bit of a, I guess, an awareness um, activity, then I think that'll do good for both sides of the story. Absolutely. Now, I know when we spoke to you after the first time you took part in the Cape to Cape, there are a few obstacles where your support crew had to lift the hand cycle over a, a log or something like that. Were there any hairy moments on the four <laughs> stages this year? There, are, there was, and I think there always will be, and I wouldn't want to take all of them out because that actually brings a lot of excitement to the hand cycling side of things. Um, when it gets, yeah, there are some sections where it gets to the point of ridiculous where you need two guys to, you know, almost, um, you know, deadlift you over big logs and things like that. But we eliminate, eliminated most of those with the consultation uh, with the organizers at the beginning. But um, yeah, look, our fourth stage towards the end, there was about two kilometers of really hairy single trail stuff, real slippery pea gravel stuff. And I actually came off the trike a couple of times. Uh, one of them I was a bit concerned about um, my leg being impinged between a sharp log and, and my bike. So, but everything for that, that all right. And yeah, again, it, it does add to the excitement, but you do have to be a bit mindful and reasonable when you do come across these obstacles. Um, I saw the other hand cyclist, Connor, um, he took on some pretty, pretty nasty jumps and you know things that I would be a bit more cautious about. But he just fly over those things without care in the world. So, yeah, he's a pretty ballsy guy. <laughs> well, I believe it was one of your support riders who actually broke his finger as well and had to have an operation at the end. Yeah, so that was Warren, and he came from Queensland specifically just so he could support ride me. He wasn't here to go off and do his own riding, so. Um, yeah, because four days is a big task for just one support rider. I actually had three, and I alternated between them. So I gave uh, Warren and Matt a rest day on stage two. Uh, so I said, "You guys just go off for a, a quiet ride on your own. Um, you know, do the stage at your own leisurely pace." And uh, yeah, it seems when I let people um, go off and do their own thing, they get they come back with bad injuries. So yeah, at the end of stage two finish line, he just comes up to me, sticks his finger in my face, and I'm just thinking, "Well, what's going on here?" It's, spit out of place and swollen. He's like, yeah, I've dislocated it. But he's actually, um, they tried to manipulate it uh, yesterday, and I think he's going in to get some pins put in to um, stabilize that fracture. It ended up being a, a fracture of the um, index finger. So, yeah, look, he kept pushing, and I think he felt really bad um, not being able to support me for the other two days. But, you know, kudos to him. He, he pulled through, and he did support me for those two days as well. I saw as well that your average speed was around 10 kilometers per hour, which is not slow when you consider the terrain you're going over. Yeah, I think it was 12 uh, all up over the all, the full four stages. Of course, 
Uh, I think it was the first, second stage were a little bit slower. But yeah, look, uh, when I ride solo, I average about nine and a half. Um, so, you know, a little bit above walking pace. Um, but yeah, we clocked in at about 12. And, and that's, I guess, reflective of, it's almost equivalent to your, your mountain bike riders at the back of the pack. So, um, yeah, look, speeds are getting faster. And again, I'd attribute that to the good training that we do. Um, and the good support riders that we have. And look, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if every year we kept beating our average speeds and we got to a point where we won't have to have detours and shortcuts and we're doing the full length and we're still able to keep up with the rest of the riders. What's next for you? Oh, good question. Um, at the moment, I'm taking, I guess, the next few months to really concentrate on... I guess building up the sport from an administrative trail side of things. So um, I'm de currently developing a trail rating system so that people uh, can go online, um, have a look at the trails and see what's accessible for a hand cyclist. So then they can gauge uh, based on their ability what they're capable of doing and where they want to go. So it cuts out a lot of the grunt work and a lot of people aren't um, as adventurous as me I like to go in places that no, no other people have gone and, and finding out if it is accessible or if I can't get through something. Um, so if I can make that information available through to other people, then I think that's going to attract a lot more people to the sport. So I'm really concentrating on that side and just really making it, um, I guess, a very structured and official, uh, a systematic, systematic um, process to this so that not just people with hand cycles can go out and rate a trail, but anyone on a mountain bike can go out and rate the trail. So it cuts out a bit of the grunt work for me as well. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And, you know, I've, I've got panels and conferences that I've been to. And yeah, hopefully there's a few more coming up as well. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a big thing, which I, I won't let the cat out just yet, but we're looking at some, I guess, national um, I don't know how you put it, but we're looking, we're taking things to a national level. So um, stay tuned, <laughs> I guess. Well, fantastic to catch up with you again, Andrew, and uh, yeah. make sure it's not two years and we will hear <laughs> about those national plans, no doubt, when they come to fruition. Yeah, absolutely, mate. We'll keep you in touch, eh? Hi, I'm Willie Miller, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, that was Andrew Ladawi, and it's always good to catch up with him and uh, great that he's got so many plans ahead. He's trying to get events over here. And I think it's great, John, that one of the things he's trying to do, as he talked about there, is trying to make more of these mountain biking tracks available to hand cyclists, so athletes with a disability, so they can go out and, and live a normal life or do the mountain biking like an able-bodied person. I'm sure anybody that's involved in mountain biking at that level would understand how restrictive some of these tracks can be. And let's we've seen the, the bicycle in question that he uses. And it's not horribly wide. It's not a great big, huge, wide thing. But it, it is wide enough for some of these tracks to be restrictive, unfortunately. And the great thing I think he said was uh, that he's no longer regarded as a novelty, that people now accept that that is just another user on these mountain bike tracks. And, and that's great. Right. Some of these tracks, we'd have troubles walking, and he's doing hand cycling. It's an awesome effort. It's immense. You want to see his shoulders. Yeah, I can, and his forearms, and his chest probably as well. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> we can only dream. <laughs> exactly. Well, I know you... Uh, actually, just while we're on disability sport, yeah. uh, commiserations to... The Gliders, the Women's Australian Wheelchair Basketball Team, silver medalist in London, and they lost the final up in China against China, and so they will not be going to Rio. The men, the rollers, did qualify. Of course, they were silver medalists as well, so they've got the chance to go for gold, but a huge disappointment for the Gliders. Uh, I take it that's part of the Asian qualifying to get to... Yep. I mean, what happened was they took part in a tournament earlier in the year yep. and they came fourth. Had they come third in that, there would have been two qualifying spots from Asia. 
but they lost that game to Great Britain, so uh, Asia lost one of its qualification spots. And then we lost to China. Yeah, they got beaten quite convincingly. Uh, poor Bills. Oh, look, they've got 40 years to make amends. That's why you've got to look at it. Absolutely. And uh, the good news from the Kookaburras' victory, of course, in the Oceania Cup meant that Ireland had qualified for the Olympics in hockey for the first time, I think it was since 1908. So, I mean, that's an f- amazing achievement. Um, over a 100 years since an Irish hockey team participated in the Olympic Games, uh, and they actually picked up silver medals in the inaugural hockey event, which took place in London in 1908. I don't know if they're going to get s- silver next year. It's going to be a big ask, but fantastic that the Irish have qualified. Oh, that's a, that's a long time. There wouldn't be too many countries that have had that sort of uh, spread in their representation at the Olympics in a sport, would there? No. I mean, it'd be like Australia and gymnastics or something, I suppose. Until recently, we haven't really been known for our gymnasts. Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate to do the game that saw them. I think they finished fourth in the Hockey World League, which meant that, that if the Kookaburras won, then that would see them qualify. And the scenes after that were unbelievable. The coach was crying, the players were crying, because they knew there was a really good chance that they were going to get through. How complex are these qualification procedures now that you're relying on the result between two teams that aren't playing in the competition that you happen to be playing in? It's crazy. It is crazy. What What the ruling is, though, John, is that the IOC say that every team has to have two chances of qualifying. The only sport that doesn't is football, soccer. Um, So you have the Confederation Championships and then you have the Hockey World League. So the teams from there. So then it it does become very complex. So Australia qualified through winning the World... uh, the. Hockey World League, so well, they'd already qualified. So, it, yeah, that puts another place in another competition. Yeah, in, because in, they qualified twice because yeah, they won Oceania. Yeah. Then you go down the pecking order of the Hockey World League and then third yeah. team goes through or the fourth team okay. or whatever. The thing that a lot of people have been saying is, and hockey maybe has to look at this, is do you play all the confederation qualifiers before you play the Hockey World League or do you play the Hockey World League before you play all of the confederations? Because it, sh- it certainly needs to be that everybody's still got a lot to play for. And that it's a level playing field for everybody. Exactly. Yeah, so you, you, everybody goes into that tournament knowing what, what the score is rather than waiting. And, yeah. Because the, the other big question was South Africa won their confederation. Now, had Egypt qualified, Egypt would be going to Rio. But South Africa weren't expected to win it. And earlier in the year, the South African Hockey Federation and the South African Olympic Federation said even if they win, they will not be sending the team to Rio. Now, they didn't expect them to win because they'd lost in an earlier competition to Egypt. Now they've won it. Um, Are they going to send a team? Well, it's interesting because they've received the letter of invitation and I'll just read you what the press release says. It goes, The system states that after the completion of the last Continental Championship, the FIH will communicate in writing the confirmation of qualification to the National Olympic Committee. The National Association of each qualified team will, within 14 days of the conclusion of the competition, uh, receive that letter. Then they will have 14 days in which to confirm if they wish to use those quota places. So South Africa, there's a petition going around at the moment saying that they want to go. All the players have said, we've earned the right to go. Please let us go. Um, The FIH, I think, is expecting them not to go, uh, which makes it very, very interesting. And I'm trying to work out which was the team that is waiting on uh, finding out whether they take their place or not because the teams that have qualified already um, are the... India, Argentina, the Netherlands, Australia, Germany, Belgium, Great Britain, Canada, Spain and Ireland. Hi, I'm Samit Dad, Olympian, hockey player. You're watching on me, not the footy show. Anyway, we should probably turn our attention to our next guest, and we haven't caught up with him for a while, actually, and that is a man who, is, I believe, is probably the first fencer 
to ever be nominated for the WACE Athlete of the Year Award. And that is our good friend, Sutherland Scuds. Sutherland Scuds, welcome back to Not The Footy Show. Yeah, it's good to be back on, mate. It's been a few years. It has indeed, and it's been a, a very sort of different couple of years for you. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been pretty up and down. Um, uh, in 2013, I was diagnosed with uh, having a brain tumour and had to go through surgery and chemotherapy and radiation treatments for, um, for a couple of months, and that put me out for you know, several months um, coming up to this Olympics. So, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a topsy-turvy ride. <laughs> How did they find the tumour? Um, I was down at training and I had a seizure. Um, and, yeah, the next day I went in for an MRI and... Uh, sorry, a CT scan and, yeah, they found it when I went in. Um, they could see it on there and I got sent straight up to the hospital. Was the prognosis then fairly positive that you were going to sort of obviously still be with us and come through it and, and also have all your movement as well? Uh, I mean... It, we weren't sure at the time because obviously I think, you know, it was well, it was the size of a golf ball, so it was pretty big. But, I mean, the surgeon told me that, you know, um, until it gets to, like, the size of an orange, does it become, you know, so bad that, you know, it's a, a death sentence, so to speak. Um, so it was positive in one sense, but then we start to find out um, what grade of tumour it was and, you know, how dangerous that grade is. So um, it turned out to be... Um, yeah, basically like the second worst grade it can be so it was you know um the worst grade is you know it can spread through the body my grade was um it can grow pretty fast but you know we the treatments can definitely get rid of it as well did you put all thoughts of fencing aside then and it was just a case of obviously making sure you stayed alive and could live a normal life um, I actually remember sitting in the hospital bed and I just had this sort of like epiphany of, um, you know, I, I just want to commit and just so want to try and make Rio. Um, I, like I'd actually been having a few tough months with it and I was, you know, I almost decided that I was going to do the national championships that year and then I was going to quit after that. Um, but, yeah, I don't know, I just found this um, inspiration coming from, you know, the cancer and this life-threatening um, you know, uh, injury that I had and I was just like, no, nah, you know, that's going to be my goal and, you know, that was maybe the thing that I concentrated on to assist me when I was getting over and going through treatment and everything. I remember the last time we spoke, you were over East because it was very hard There was for you to get sort of top quality fencing competition. I mean, was it a case of you've, you've come back to WA now and what's the thought process in that? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I was over uh, in Sydney, living there, training with the national coach from 20, um, 20, uh, 2009 through to 2012, trying to qualify for London. And then after that, yeah, I just came back um, to finish university and um, to, yeah, just to be around family and stuff like that. I, I miss my family a lot. And, um, yeah, I just thought it was time for a change and thought, you know, me coming back could maybe help the sport in WA continue to grow because you know you know I was one of the top athletes in the sport at the time and we ended up that year like I won the nationals um national championships and then we also won um the team event for like WA did so um you know it that was a you know big part of me coming back as well that's huge I mean so WA in terms of fencing then is really sort of put itself on the map now yeah I mean we've had a lot of um support from the WA Institute of Sport and uh, they've really helped us um, along the way. A lot of the athletes that are in my team uh, have, have been or are with Waze. And then in another event, you know, the top athlete who's also vying for the Olympics, he was in Waze as well. So, um, you know, from that basis, you know, and then the athletes that we've been producing that, you know, we've got a pretty good future, especially, you know, if some of us start coaching afterwards. So... You've said your focus is on Rio now and qualifying for that. What is the path to Rio? What have you got to do to get to Rio? Um, okay, the path is, um, at the moment, is I've got to try to secure the number one ranking in Australia. Um, so I think I'm second or equal first at the moment. Um, and, if, and then from that position, I have to go into like a qualifying competition. 
Um, then if I make top three in that, then I get to go to Rio. And that qualifying competition, is that in Australia or is it in Asia? No, yeah, so that's, that's in Asia. So we're, we're in the Asian zone, so it's Australia, Oceania, and then the whole of Asia. Um, so it's, it's a really difficult competition. The majority of the people that you're competing against, like, all they do is fencing. That's their, their, their profession or that's their job, so to speak. And, and yeah, you know, us Australian athletes are... Yeah, truly amateur we work full-time and then we train at night and you know pretty much doing two jobs so um who are the main countries that you'd be up against in that that are the real threats that normally take those spots well um so the koreans are like some of the best in the world um but they will actually they won't be there because they'll qualify outright because they're you know the top 16 in the world and all those athletes go straight in um so you know, we're likely to have, um, you know, you Chinese athletes. Um, there could be some Iranians that are pretty good. There's Japanese. Um, there's, you know, you've got the likes of, like, Malaysia, Vietnam. They're, like, starting to put a lot of money into, you know, a fencing, which is a smaller sport. I think they've, they've you know, come to the decision that they're not going to start winning medals in swimming or anything like that so that a lot of smaller countries are putting money into fencing um and uh yeah i mean there's even countries like kazakhstan you know who have a former former soviet union and they've got like a, a lot of former russian athletes who have poached who have been you know just outside the russian team who are one of the best teams in the world and and uh you know so they've You've got these imports, so to speak, and it's, so it's, it's pretty hard. There's a lot of competition in our region. Well, it's good news for you when you do retire because there's coaching opportunities now. Um, but, I mean, how realistically do you think you can get to Rio? I mean, obviously you've got a dream that is possible, but you can do it. How's training going, and do you feel you're on the right track? Um, I had a bit of a tough year. I mean, I had a lot of health issues. My plan at the end of last year... I got second in nationals and I was the top Australian in the competition. I got beaten by an international athlete. And I was, you know, I was pretty happy. I mean, there's one guy one and another guy from WA who were, were all vying for that number one spot. Um, so it, it's going to be difficult. And then once you get in that qualifier, I mean, it's one competition. It's top three spots. You know, it's anything can happen on that day. You know, you can just have a good, you know, you know maybe if there's athletes that might, be you know perceived as better as you by other people like they might draw each other um you, you just never know fencing is one of those sports where you know a match is only 15 minutes long and if someone's off for a minute you know just not concentrating then you know you can you know sometimes you know you see the number one in the world guy lose to someone that's you know 50th or you know someone that's quite a lot further down the rankings which you don't see in a lot of other sports I was going to ask that because, you know, you've obviously had your illness, you're still training, you've managed to get a law degree and are now practicing law. Um, and it, so there's a lot going on sort of in your head and yet that concentration. Has the law and all of that, do you think, helped you be able to focus better when you're actually fencing? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a different world, I guess. Like when, I'm a, when I put my lawyer hat on, then I'm a lawyer and I... Just sort of forget about fencing and when I go to training I just try to have fun because you know fencing you know we, we just don't have enough funding in Australia to you know send athletes anywhere so it's it's a hobby in a way and um, yeah I guess when I go to, to fencing training or you know the gym for fencing um, yeah that's that's for fun that's my fun time and then any any extra time I spend with my girlfriend and my family and friends you know not thought about sort of trying to then go into pentathlon where you can use your fencing there. You've got a horse at home or anything? <laughs> no, mate. I'm, I think I might get a dog, but I don't think he's going to be carrying, <laughs> carrying me around. Um, yeah, no, I just think I'll probably start doing a bit of coaching and just, you know, one of my goals is still to build the sport. So, um, you know, I've just bring back all the knowledge that I've had, you know, and received over the years, travelling and working with the national coach. And I think I'll be able to train up a few athletes and hopefully win a few more national championships for WA. That would be great. So when do you have these final sort of matches that will determine your fate, whether you're going to Rio or not? 
Um, I mean, at the moment, there's two competitions. I got one competition in um, in at uh, the AIS in Canberra, um, so that's the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra, and that's in end of November. So I think I will be competing, competing on like the 27th of November, and uh, also I have another um, competition probably in March next year, which will be a World Cup um, in Korea. South Korea, um, and yeah, that's another important one. If I do well in that, then I can get points as well. And then obviously, I think in April is when the Olympic qualifiers are. So just about two or three more competitions to go, and then you know, yeah, by April, April next year, we know who's the going to be in the Olympics. Yeah. Well, Sullivan, it's been great catching up with you once again. It's good to see you over your health issues and smiling and looking as fit as anything. And, and let's hope you do get that Rio dream and we'll stay in touch and find out how it all goes. Yeah, yeah, mate. I'll definitely be pinching myself if I, uh, if I make it there. But, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next you know, few months. And, yeah, keep training, keep working hard. Thanks for having me on. I'm Caitlin Bassett, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, always good to hear from Sutherland Scuds and also always good to talk, John, about sports that maybe aren't mainstream, such as fencing. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast and you're involved in a sport like that, that is sort of not a minority sport, but it's a sort of lesser one in terms of getting media attention. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have a chat with you. So just contact us via Facebook or you can, of course, contact us via the website which is notthefootyshow.com very old sport too fencing very one old. of the oldest yeah. yeah and you remember Michael Fontaine our oh, old sparring partner I on the show I do remember Michael very fond memories of Michael well I think we should give him a little bit of a congratulations don't oh, you okay what's he done now well he's now working at the Canberra Cavalry baseball team and they're sitting top of the Australian baseball league ladder oh well that would all have to do with Michael's appointment undoubtedly Absolutely, but uh, great for him, and uh, you know how he loved the baseball, and he actually went down to watch the Perth Heat, whereas Darren Harper, who was a host before him, only went for the hot dogs. That's right. Although Darren did say they were the best in Perth. You would get a lot of hot dogs in Darren. I don't know you get that many hot dogs in Michael. (laughs) Well, we've probably yabbered on a fair bit. We hope you've enjoyed this. There will be another podcast shortly. Uh, but I will be heading off to India, and so we'll try and keep you up to date with all that is happening in the world of sport. But from me, Ashley Morrison. And me, John Lee. See you later. Some people are on the fence. They think it's all over. See ya. We'll be back next week. <laughs>